Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome the founder of Amphetamine Reptile Records and the band Halo of Flies, Thomas Hazelmeyer, known in the community as HazeXXL. Mr. Hazelmeyer, how are things? They are wonderful. Could do the whole thing really stiff. <laughs> that is great. They're, 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 no. Everything's going good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, you started out working in a literal heavy metal casting plant. Did that industry have any impact on the sound you were trying to create at the time? Uh, I did, nah, I wouldn't ever connect those dots. I'm, I'm trying to do it, and then the dogs are going crazy in the background. <laughs> I add some real life, you know, to the to the podcast. Sorry about that. My my dog is also sitting beside me, so she could come in at any point too. <laughs> and then just launch because there's a squirrel two yards away, or yeah, pretty much something in the sky that we can't deign to figure out. <laughs> no, uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't really. Uh, I mean, that particular job, I wouldn't necessarily, like, do any sort of linkage. I think it's just grown up. I mean, I did most of my childhood in Michigan, which at that point was kind of like a still heavily industrialized, yet all the, the rot was starting to kick in in the, in the 70s, which is the reason my family wound up in Minnesota was uh, for job prospects because they were drying up in Michigan so, so intensely in the late 70s that the state kind of collapsed in on itself. It's definitely kind of like a, you know, a loud, brash, you know, crashing, constant, you know, noise thing that was around and part of just kind of coming up, you know. Did you think your time in the military contributed to the sound at all? Uh, I mean, everything contributed as far as like just uh, all I wanted to do was kick everything I could get my foot on, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like kick shit down. Um, so I mean that. Uh, it definitely didn't temper my aggression, let's put it that way. Well, what did you think of Seattle when you first arrived there from Minneapolis? I, at that point in time, I completely fell in love with Seattle. It was like, a, a, at that point in time, pre-Microsoft and Amazon, it was just like kind of a rough and tumble. It was like a Midwestern industrial town on the, you know, on a, as a waterfront on the West Coast, it, it, it was definitely not your uh, Cafe au lait um, kind of, you know what I mean? Like that, that whole yuppie existence that kind of spread out from California and took over Seattle. That wasn't, that wasn't its identity at that point in time. And I really, really liked the Seattle of that era. Like I just took to it like a fish to water great fucking record stores and this really uh, hidden history of like underground music lots of you know original wave punk rock bands and i mean that's all i cared about at that point in time in my life being out there was like you know music didn't start until like 76 um, so it was and, and there was like such a rich you know bunch of really cool original punk rock wave bands out there and like i said too the record stores were phenomenal so were you were you being influenced by those Seattle bands like the Wipers, or were your still primary influences stuff outside Seattle like Iggy Pop and the MC5? You were picking up like that kind of stuff at the record stores, or were you going into the local scenes? Well, there was like a, a relatively soon to be in there. I hooked up with uh, uh, John Bigley, became one of my best friends out there 
from the U-Men, and he was definitely, you know, educating me on, like, have you heard these guys called the Sonics? Which I hadn't. So he, he was kind of, and, and he was the one who hit me to, like, a lot of the West Coast, like the L.A. Danger House stuff, which I wasn't familiar with, you know. The second I heard, you know, the, the second the needle dropped on the weirdos, I'm, I'm in. Like, that shit was fucking amazing to me. So there's like a, a you know, I, I didn't really care about where anything was, you know, whether it was local or not local or where it was from. For some reason, I think just being a poor town, I'm just, you know, taking a stab at it, theorizing why. Why? But they seemed to, have, like, like I said, there were really great stories. And they were on top of shit. Like, they, they were getting, like, really killer Australian stuff I'd never seen or heard of. You know, like, Feed Time and, and things like that. Like, I remember buying the first Feed Time record at at uh, Fallout Records. And, and it, was, it was something, I think, I found out later on, they made, like, 300 copies of it. So how the hell is there multiple copies showing up in Seattle? And Steve Turner, I was with Steve Turner at the time, and he's like, that's really, really good. You should check it out. And I'm like, fuck it up. Sure, you know. I don't remember what the hell the question was. I'm just rambling. <laughs> Please continue to ramble. I, that, that, that's what my audience loves. But Sub Pop was kind of formed in the same area at the same time as Amphetamine Reptile. They were always seen as kind of a competition for you. What was the relationship like between both labels? Um, I never, I don't, I never heard through the grapevine of those guys viewing us as competition. They certainly didn't need to because they, they were had, like, you know, Stuff like Nirvana and Soundgarden that was certainly skyrocketing to places that we never went. Um, I never, I never viewed them as competition in the in the slightest. I mean, there was a few crossover bands, like both of us, you know, our appreciation for the U-Man, both. So, you know, I was working with the Thrown Ups. Those guys formed Mud Honey, which were on Sub Pop, and I, I loved Mud Honey. Those guys, like they, their first actual release was on Amphetamine Reptile on a compilation, Dope Guns and Fucking, the first one. So there was some shared interest, but the whole, I guess, the, the, you know, grunge thing in its stereotypical form wasn't my ballywick. I didn't really, wasn't what I was after, you know. I mean, I fucking love the Fuji's MC5. I just don't need to play a Civil War reenactor with it. Well, did you form Amphetamine Reptile Records, like, out of necessity? Or did you like how things were being handled with your fierce distributor, Twin Tone? Did you ever just consider using them as the label and not just distributor? Now, twin, the Twin Tone hookup didn't come until later. Oh, it uh, didn't? The starting of the label, the starting of the label was just literally like I was making, we recorded Halo Flies and I was sending out demos and uh, knew a couple people like Peter Davis from Your Flush Fanzine who had, you know, knew some of the players at Touch and Go and... and um, homestead and places like that. So he gave me the names, like, you know, make sure to send it to Gerard at, at Homestead. So I knew it was getting heard by people, but I had no takers. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, I would much rather just like, you know, if Homestead would have said, we'll take it. I'd have fucking been there in a heartbeat because I loved like the Homestead records of that early 80s post punk kind of thing was they were just doing so much amazing stuff. That was all Gerard Cosler that later on we did. You know, found a matador. Yeah, I pretty much got no no interest from any of the labels I wanted to be on that I, you know, thought were amazing. So I just like, well, fuck it, let's fake it. We'll just pretend like we're on a label and make our own record, you know. So I kind of took enough effort to um, present Amphetamine Reptile Records on the release as a real label. That's, and that, that's not that 
big of a deal or that hard to do, but a lot of people, if they're doing, you know, a vanity press that a lot of bands do in that position, don't really think about how it's getting presented. So they'll just make up a name, you know, Fuckface Records, ha ha, let's call it Fuckface Records, and then it's just, a, you know, in the fine print, Fuckface Records, because it's a vanity press and they don't. Whereas I came up with like an actual, you know, logo for the label and presented it as though the label is real, the band is real. Even though that wasn't, my intent was just like, <laughs> send the record to and still try to get a deal. And then, you know, we did a couple of records, and meanwhile, my friend, like I was talking about Steve Turner, said, I want you to do my record. And, and uh, you men also asked me to do a single with them. And so, like, other people, like, I guess, took the bait. Like, it's a real label. It looks cool. He's doing a good job. Can you get the shit out there? Can you do it for us, too? And then from that, it just kind of snowballed. Well, bringing up that logo, <clears throat> was there a lot of controversy in America with it? Or did you feel like there was a lot of backlash to that original logo in places like Germany where it was a little taboo still to be playing around with Nazi symbols. I guess which, which, which logo are you talking about? The one with like the reptile head on like the Nazi Eagle. Then you were like playing with okay, the fascism. That's, yeah, that was never actually, that's no, when I say the logo, I'm just talking about like the, the, the treatment for that says amphetamine reptile record. Okay. That was like a, a flourish that was put on, the Dope Guns record originally. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of become, a, a, I would say, more of a mascot than a logo. And not, not all that, you know, it's not like we leaned on it heavily. Yeah, I just didn't get, I didn't get told the rules that, you know, if you, God, I'm, I'm spacing out the word. If you take something, a symbol from somebody and fuck with it and turn it into a, a I took the, the Hitler Youth Eagle and I defaced it. I defiled it. Yeah. I turned it into something you know, corrupt and bankrupted it, and yet there's that weird thing where there's there's a certain group of people who can never find any humor and no irony in anything. So it's like, what? I'm not, this is not idol worship of this. this I took it, I fucking owned it. I fucked it up. And part of it was just Americanizing, like, you know, the original uh, symbol had, like, you know, it was like this heroic, you know, eagle holding a sword and a, and a hammer. And I was like, I gave it a baseball bat in a 45 and put a fucked up reptile, you know, head with a tongue lolling out, you know, it's a shit take, you know, somebody, <laughs> I, I, it wouldn't have got me any favors or friends in Nazi Germany had I done it there that, let's put it that way, <laughs> you know what I mean? The controversy with that seems to, and that's a, where like a lot of people get in trouble is if you're pushing humor or fucking with stuff at the time, all of a sudden somebody 25 years later is going to try to call you out for what might have been, you know what I mean? Like cutting edge, fucking with people's sensibilities or, you know, whatever. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the history of visionism where it's like, you should have known how people are going to think in 2020 and not made that joke. You know, that's a, it's, a, it's, it's an asinine system of a belief system that I just can't believe gets any credence. Well, art was always a big thing for the label, I feel. Having Kozik and other artists around you creating the art for many of the album covers, did this influence your own art at the time? And even till even to today? Oh, yeah, yeah. Intense process. Like, my take on art was through the school systems or getting dragged to art museums, you know, and, and just looking at this utter pap that was was passed off as art you know like going to the 
my favorite example is like going to the, to the uh, a really well known museum, and there was literally a piece of string coming off the ceiling with a rock tied to it, and just that the pretentiousness of that infuriated the younger me. It was like, oh, that's utter bullshit. And then to see people like you know Kozik and Hassan and Coop and and uh, a lot of the underground guys at the time doing amazing fucking shit, and you know they're never going to get entrance into the you know quote unquote legitimate art world, even though their shit has 10 times the impact of visceral punch to the head. You know, the, the young, the first time I saw Kozik stuff, it was like literally jaw falling open. Like, Oh my God, who did this? This is fucking amazing. You know, taking the, um, the, the, the killer sixties poster, you know, silk screening and colors and usage, and then putting it in the context of the nineties with, you know, fucking with the, like the, we were just talking about the sensibilities of, of the time, you know, the first one I saw was Fred Flintstone shooting up, and it was a really well done Fred Flintstone. The colors were just, you know, just slamming. And it was one of the cows brought that back from Austin, saying, "You got to see this poster." I'm like, "Oh my god!" And it was they ripped it off a telephone pole. That, that's the amazing part. I still have that copy with the staple holes in it. You know. Well, would you say that the concert flyers of like the late '70s and early '80s, and artwork from bands like the Cramps? Was and is that like what is influencing your your litho art today and art surrounding your label? Did that also help? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, one of the reasons I took to, to the the lino cuts and, and linoleum printing was because I cut my teeth on on hardcore flyers, which is all Xerox machines. Like at that point in time, I could literally tell you where the cheapest and best Xerox machines were across the Twin Cities. You know, it's like, well, go over to the campus. That Kinko's over there has a machine in the back corner that comes out with really great copies. The library down on Hennepin over there, they're 10 cents a copy, but, man, they're really good. You know, it's like literally knowing who had the shitty machines, who had good ones, because it was like I was making flyers and doing art for the records all through Xerox for the early years of my first – my first stories in the graphics were all through Xerox technology and using copy machines and you know that's the only way you could affordably uh blow something up like i want to make this fly as big as my fist well i had to you know max it out to 25 percent increase in size hit it once then put that one into the copier hit it again so on and so forth until you had a fly the size of your fist for a flyer or something but that black and white and the grittiness i fucking love that doing that stuff back then and and this incorporates that same vibe to it, the same expediency and dirtiness to it. And I, that's, yeah, I love that. That's definitely a, a influence too. It's like the keeping it down to a limited amount of colors. I mean, one of the things I, I did my fair share of computer graphics, but that limitless spectrum of color just tends to get abused. You know, I, I love trying to, to, create shit and keep the palette down to like, you know, two colors. That's it. Well, three, if you count the backdrop white paper, you know, well, going back to your label, do you feel like having handshake agreements as opposed to the written contracts were a blessing or a curse looking back? I tended to write out the gate aside from like when we first was doing singles and all handshake agreements on that. Um, and there wasn't, there was no money. Let's, let's be honest. You know, you make 700 copies of a single back then and you're selling to the distributor for, you know, 28 cents above what it costs you to make the things. No one's getting rich. 
I, I did do contracts really early out the gate, though, just because it was obvious on the, the in the landscape that the majors had no qualms about showing up and just completely raiding the you know the minor leagues, the indie world. They they and the only way to protect yourself from them was to have a contract because they didn't want to like snatch up a band and then get sued later on if said band was you know hugely successful. So they respected the paper armor that you would put up to, to you know. I'd always told the bands themselves, though, it's just like, this is literally worth the paper it's written on. If you don't want to do this anymore, just tell me. I'll fucking tear it up. And I would tell people at the time, too, like, the only reason I do these contracts is because I'm not going to, you know, spend the next three, four years working with you guys really tightly, get somewhere, and then just have Warner Brothers walk in and snatch it up. Well, speaking of snatching Um, up, was having Helmet on the label something that you look back at fondly? Or do you have any regrets on how any of that went down? I, I don't, there's no real regrets. Um, they, they blew up so fast on their own that there was no way we could maintain or, or kept them on the label. I mean, we, we, there was at that point, the label was, there were three of us working there. We had talked about it and all agreed, like, you know, we're literally spending half our day working on helmet stuff and we've got, you know, 10, 12 other bands. Because it's like the phone was just ringing, you know, it was just helmet, helmet, helmet. So I just knew full well that those guys were easily skyrocketing past our capabilities. Did um, you do you still have the, those um, vinyl contracts to this day? Vinyl contracts, what do you mean? For, like when they went to the major labels, didn't you continue to do their vinyl releases on top of... Oh, that was, that was, that was actually... Uh, Surprisingly, one of the few times I've ever seen the, the times I did vinyl for major labels, which I also did with Melvin's when they went to Atlantic. Um, that was the only time I ever seen major labels not do like a fucking forty-seven page contract boilerplate bullshit. I mean, at that time they they knew that the critic world and the bands loved vinyl, and it kept you know kept it quote unquote cool. But they just want, they were, they, they couldn't run away from vinyl fast enough back then. So they didn't want to deal with it. They, their distributors, they were completely shifting gears. Like all the money was in CDs. And so that, you know, they, they would literally, you know, do, will you want to do the vinyl for this, this project? And we're like, yeah. What's, what, how does it work out? We'll just ship you the vinyl, you sell it. Do you want us to send you? No, just fucking keep it. We don't care. So, I mean, in, in major label lands, you know, 10,000 units. Is nothing. They don't give a fuck. Uh, you know, we're working in a fucking closet in South Minneapolis. Then handing us ten thousand records to sell was like, you know, boys, the doors are gonna stay open for another couple months. No worries. Um, it was you know great. Well, when so, you're working with I, bands yeah. like the Melvins today, doing limited release vinyl, do you think it's something that's helping to rebuild the vinyl market? I don't think. I don't know. I wouldn't know that see a tie into the greater overall market per se i'd like to think we're trying to carve out a you know a niche market that you know stands unto itself that's its own thing yeah it seems to anger certain people when we do it the way we do it just, uh, just because of the limited release it's a limited release and it's expensive um you know of course they're never going to take into account that if we're selling a record for you know thirty dollars, it literally cost us fifteen to make it. When you do it that way, with the 
crazy vinyl and silkscreen sleeves and um, you know stuff like that. Also, you know, the small run. But at the same time, too, it's like with the, especially particularly with the Melvins, those guys, everything always comes out in an affordable format, and they're always doing. You know, what I mean, they're, you can keep more than keep busy buying Melvins releases and never come near the stuff I'm doing with them. You know what I mean? Like there's, they do such a vast array of releases everywhere. It's kind of its own side, you know, side gig is doing the, the limited stuff on AMRAP. Well, do you ever wish certain artists like the Jesus Lizard were 100% represented by AMRAP? Or did you like the in and out nature of some of these bands? Um, I mean, yeah, every, everything is, it's, it's its own, uh, it's its own beast. It's just, it has its own rhythm of what you can and can't do or how you can go, get along with people or work with them. So, I mean, I kind of like the Where we're at now, where it's just wide open and I, I could work, kind of just flit around and do what I want to do is what I wouldn't be doing it again if I hadn't figured out how to get it to that place. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, was it important for you to have a band on the label that were that was exciting live as they were on their records? Yeah, definitely. Um, there was there was a couple couple times where you know bands just couldn't carry it off live, and it was a real bummer because they were you know wrote really good songs and stuff, but it was kind of a high energy format. You know, it wasn't that often though, but. Uh, it ha- happened to me once, and I, I'm not going to name the band because I just don't want to flag somebody off 30 years later. But, uh, I, you know, where I was working with them a bit and then saw them, and it was one of the most disappointing things where it's just like you're standing there and you're, you know, your galosh is looking at your neck of your guitar and there's zero energy coming from. How the fuck do you play those songs with zero energy? It just blew my mind. So it was kind of one of those... Uh, I would never... Uh, I definitely more than a few times signed band right on scene though helmet was one of them i never saw those guys live they were on the east coast how the fuck was i going to get over there if i did a single with them and then uh halo flies was going to the east coast i'm i talked to the booking agent and said man get these guys to open i've got, I've got to see them because i'm really excited about the demo taping with the single we did and so i got helmet to open for us and uh then they promptly just fucking destroyed us which was not so awesome but <laughs> In hindsight, it was great. Doesn't when you're standing there watching your band just kill, and you got like, I gotta go on after this. What the fuck? <laughs> well, does it make you proud to see a lot of the bands that you've been represented or like associated with over the years now starting to get the recognition that they maybe deserved back then? The documentaries, the retrospectives, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I. I Nobody wants to see their, you know, a big chunk of their life and a lot of, you know, labor, love and, and stuff just kind of, you know, curl up and blow it all the way down the street. So on that level, it's definitely great to see, you know, people coming up and, and digging that sound and, and giving it some props. I mean, it's still, yeah, it's, it, I'm, I'm not going to complain. Well, do you think that the state of the music industry has worsened or bettered? Since you put the state of AMREP on hiatus since in 1999, oh, it's it's hideous. It's bizarre to me. Like a, uh, uh, there's like this leftover corpse that's still trying to do shit 
the way it did it for 50 years, you know, the put the release out, send it to the distributor, send out one sheet to this, promote this way. And like, it's this, you know, the same old machine that hasn't adjusted to the new paradigm, which is music is fucking free. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why we, like when me and Buzz kind of came up with this way we're doing stuff and making art records that are limited and more, almost more art pieces than an actual release. It's because um, the best story, the best story I have for that is is uh, one of the early singles we were doing, and it was like twenty five dollars because it was a small run, silk screen sleeve, etc. And I seen this live thread going. And the guy goes, "That's a lot for a single." The next guy goes, "Yeah, how's even sound?" The other guy goes, "Well, hold on a second. Posts a YouTube video of the single. He just ripped it, put a picture of it." Posted it online for the whole world to get for free. And it was just like, and that's why it's so expensive. No, it's like, you know, we're not making, this isn't the way to distribute music isn't physical anymore. But for some reason, people don't want to admit that or, or it's just, it's bizarre to me. So they're kind of limping along trying to keep this, this thing alive, this physical part of it, which I mean, I, I love and appreciate the physical part of it, but it's like that whole system of, Ship the record to the distributor. Distributor then calls the record stores, and then that goes. You know, it's like it's it's dying, guys. It's not it's not what it was. It will never be that again because the majority of people don't listen to music that way. Like, are are you getting a new revisit from even like the younger generations? Yeah, and that's where it's just like. A, um, I mean, one of the things I have to get over myself is the new streaming systems, which don't pay. It's like you're just supposed to provide these multi-billion dollar companies with free product. And they don't, they don't, they can't even be bothered to back the product. You know what I mean? Back up the digital signal so now there's glitches in it. And I'll have a lot of younger people that that's how they listen to music telling me, hey, there's a lot of glitches on a bunch of the stuff there. And it's just like, yeah, it's free. Fuck off. What, what do I care? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's not a, a, a I have a hard time wrapping my head around, but I, I have kids and I watch them. That's what they do. That, that's their that's their records. That's their CDs is streaming. So it's it's definitely the reality. It's the new radio, you know. But it's you know, it is what it is, I guess. Well, how do new bands profit off of streaming sites? If there's no physical product and streaming sites expect you to hand over the songs, how are new bands making profit? They're not. And no, that's 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 the you know, everyone knows that it's not a secret. That you know, it's like it's impossible to. You have to go twice as far to just to be able to make a living doing this anymore, because of that aspect. And it's not just the music. I mean, it's happened with a lot of other mediums as well. Like that's the reason there's not as many. You know, you can't do a physical fanzine. It's like no one wants to have to deal with that when they can just hit blogs online or, or you know what I mean so I don't know I mean that's why it's, it's a lot it's well, harder do you think that it's imperative for bands to tour as much as they can at this point and try to sell as much merch well I mean it depends on what they're doing you know what I mean like I I, I come from the world of bands never you know for a long time pre-Nirvana no one ever thought there was a possibility of making a fucking living doing punk rock so it's just like you know in most people's minds, like, I'll do this as long as I can, but eventually I'm going to have to fucking, you know, roll up my sleeves and go get the job as a plumber or a banker. 
at some point. I got to, you know, this isn't uh, going to support us for life. I would hope that people would start to change the way they do stuff to, you know, deal with the new reality. But for fuck's sakes, it's like I'll have a, I'll hear about a band, you know, the shit knuckles, and I go and look it up on Facebook or, or wherever else they might have a page, and there's a page, and they have no music posted. It's like, I, I, I watched that constantly where like bands aren't even using the free stuff they have. I mean, making videos now is easier than it's ever been, you know, in the history of humanity. You know what I mean? Like, that you could literally make something cool with your fucking iPhone if you have, you know, some clever and sit down and take your time and do it. And yet, how, you know, that many, there isn't that much shit being done on, on in the visual medium, like for YouTube or, or posting stuff or, you know, like there's free ways like Bandcamp. You can post music all fucking day. I don't know. I, it kind of is a disappointment insofar as, God, if I'd had access to that shit 30 years ago, it would have been phenomenal to be able to like directly speak to people and not have to go through the press or have to, um, you know, deal with distributors or go through, you know, all the, all the people, the, the, the many, the barriers that were between you and your audience are wiped out. And yet I don't see a lot of people taking advantage of that. Not, not from the underground scene that like, you know, AMREP comes from and is part of still, you know. Do you think AMREP would have become bigger if it was started in the new streaming world? No I, no, I don't know. I've never really thought about that. Or no, I mean, I like to think that some of the stuff when you still put it on, it's still got plenty of bite and it's still plenty weird. So mass acceptance just still isn't just around the corner. Nobody was writing a tasty pop hook. Um, you know, so I mean, I, on that level, it's like I never had any delusions that we were going to become, you know, huge and take over the world. That wasn't the point. But I don't, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm jealous of that access. I don't know if, if I could, you know, have the time machine and went back to, you know, I don't know if it would have changed it, you know, made it, it certainly would have made certain things easier, that's for sure. What was your relation? Yeah. What was your relationship to festivals and your bands playing festivals? Did you find that as something that was important? Or were you trying to keep them on, on smaller gigs? When you say festivals, at that point in time, the only stuff that came close to festivals was more like the, the new music seminar and CMJ and yeah, and the and the fledgling Southwest South by Southwest. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was key because everyone was going to fucking be there. You know what I mean? Like ha- half of every fanzine you ever heard of, those writers were going to be there, and and all the college radio DJs. The ones that lucked out and got the year's budget be able to go to New York or Texas or whatever going to do it. So it was a key moment. Like, you know, if you're going to introduce your new band to somebody or, you know, get somebody into something you got going, that you had to, those things were vital for that. And they were open to indie bands or indie labels too. So we were able to secure and be able to do a showcase at CBGB's or brownies or emos or, or you know, run down the list of the places we did it over the years um but yeah that was and then to, you know make it be an event so that people came out so you would have all the writers that, that was like you know one of those it was vital because pre-internet you couldn't just get attract everyone to a you know a page or somewhere 
it was easier. That was like the only way you were going to get all eyes focused on you for 30 seconds. Well, looking at festivals now, would, would you recommend introducing bands into the, into the marketplace, essentially? Would you have them play the festivals, or would you keep them to playing the smaller shows and work up that way? I mean, generally, it's, the way it seems, seems now is that the festivals are just like, it, everyone just looks at it as a payday. The bigger festivals, like the, the not the South by Southwest seminar kind of shit, but more like the it's actual festival. So on that level, it's like, if you can get them, take them, because you're going to get, you know, what's the one that went under that was running in England for the longest time? I was always based off their name. Oh, All yeah. Tomorrow's Party. Yeah. Like those guys, you know, every every band I know that did that, it was just like a, a really good payday. So it's like, sure, we'll do it. Cause it's like, normally we could, the best we can get is two grand and you'll pay us 10 and fly us out to England. Fuck yeah, we'll do it. Um, I don't know if it ever paid off exposure wise. Like it's a weird, it's a weird thing that you could actually have more influence in a room of the right people. If even though there's only a hundred people there, you know, in the Lower East Side at the right time and right place back in the day, you know, half that room was writers and tastemakers and guys who worked at distributors and versus all of a sudden you're playing to 7,500 people who, you know, don't have that same sort of sway over shit. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it depends on what, you know. How do you feel film has impacted you as an artist? Was it ever a big influence to you in the early days? And what were some of the filmmakers who helped shape you as an artist, if it did help shape you as an artist? Man, I, I, I'm not a big film buff. I mean, I, I, I like movies as much as the next guy. I would say a far bigger influence on me has been um, cartoons, like the old Tex Avery stuff, uh, Warner Brothers, even really old Disney stuff. I mean... I love that 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 type of animation. That was I was always a huge buff into that. Definitely had an impact. And then the next one, even bigger graphically, was porn. Just uh, uh, the packaging. I mean, I, I think back to like the. It was funny because I'd gone a long time without seeing a hustler. And then about ten or fifteen years ago, I ran across one from the late seventies or early eighties, which would have been a hustler that I was familiar with for the reading, mind you. Um, but I'm looking at this hustler going, holy shit, like, I, it, it dawned on me looking at it, like, how influential the layout, because they were doing really crazy graphics, like, and their, with the articles and the, their layouts and stuff, it was always cutting edge, and then later on I figured out, and also, it's, um, the early, uh, days of internet porn, like, the websites looked phenomenal, the graphics and the shit was just out of control, well, you come to find out that you had a lot of people cut their teeth that were in the design world through porn. There was a whole list of people that worked for Flint uh, Publications at Hustler that were our, our, our now, you know, well-known artists and graphic designers working for major, you know, corporations. But they got, the, they were able to, when they went into porn, they were able to do whatever the fuck they wanted, which was not something you were accorded working for, you know, McDonald's. Like if you're a designer at McDonald's, you're still calling the tone the company line and you're, having every committee rip your design apart and make it shittier and shittier. Whereas the porn guys, they don't give a fuck. Hey kid, do whatever you want to fucking do. Just make it look snappy, you know? So they did some amazing stuff. Um, and, and, and it was like, I, I have no qualms about saying that, that 
the shit I some of the shit I saw there was more influential on me than than you know certain Hollywood movies or certain uh, uh, you know mainstream film kind of things. Well, even some of those like guys, said, even some of those guys were working in like National Lampoon. Did that and like Mad Magazine have an influence on you as well? Then, um, yeah, I'm not as big a uh, wasn't a big. I mean, was like lo- kid. I loved Mad. The National Lampoon thing was not never was never wasn't too much my bailiwick. I mean, I mean, you know, you go through life and everything that you appreciate and you pursue, you know, has an influence or, or on you. You know, it forms your aesthetic for sure, and the, you know, so it's 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 uh, it's weird. Like a you know, big comic book kid when I you know when I was little, and that certainly you know affects the your sensibilities on like what what appeals to you, what what gets you off. Like I want to you know, and for me it was always kind of like through the music. It's pretty obvious I, I liked high energy. I wanted you know, baseball bat attack. I mean, that's that's where I gravitated graphically, you know. That's the type of stuff that I, I you know, definitely pursued, I, you know, kind of thing. Well, finally, to bring it all back to the music a little bit, have there been any recent acts that have come into your orbit in the last little bit that have really struck a nerve with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I noticed the older I get, the less linear things are so it's like I'll, I'll be thinking of like you know Die Nervin this German band I fucking love but I just realized it's like it's been a couple of years and like those guys uh, uh, once in a while come across something like uh, uh, Mr. Files out of Cincinnati this like two piece that I think are fucking amazing rip it up yeah there's there's definitely you know new stuff that happens that you know excites me it's not as nearly as frequent as i wish it would be like i wish i could find a band like that once a week fucking life would be sweet but you don't think music's dead <laughs> um no but i definitely feel that it, it got knocked down a few places and, and I, I hate i hate saying this because it's been my whole life but i i i, I uh i've used the comparison before to like poetry in the late 1800s where, you know, poets sold tons of fucking books and were like literal rock stars of their day. They could pack halls to give, you know, a spoken word performance. And poetry held this this much higher place in the public's um, attention, you know. But then as other media popped up, it, it, it kept getting pushed off, you know. Printing expanded and was able to do a lot more different things. You know what I mean? Like it just kind of, it had its day. And I kind of feel like the attention that we gave music up until the past 10 years has definitely waned. I don't think like watching my kids and, and they're not, exi- you know, it's just a, a, a one example, but I just see that that's not the burning issue that it was for previous generations that identified with it, whether it was the, you know, fifties rockabilly guy or the sixties, you know, garage turning into psychedelic hippies in the seventies, you know what I mean? Like, it was such a strong part of people's identities, and I, it doesn't seem to have that sway that it did. And I think that's just because of you know the changing, the the, the way everything's evolved. Where it's like now, as a kid coming up, you've got 
the video game, whole world of video games where you can immerse yourself into that for the rest of your life if you wanted to. And the way people communicate and all the, the Snapchat and the Instagram and the you know, different ways of expressing yourself that it's not, it's lost some of its sway, which is a bummer, but it's, that's how, that's how we do. We're always moving on, you know? Well, I I think about the power the novelist had in the fifties and sixties and what, you know, can you name a novelist of the past 10 years? That's a rock star on that level of like a Norman Naylor. You know, we, we change our attentions, especially now with technology kind of, you know, massively switching it up and it's, it's switched that to, to, you know, the whole thing of like, I'm sure you're, you're probably in the same way too. Where it's like the first time you realized there was YouTube stars. You know, I, I'm in my fifties. So it's like, we need a YouTube star. <laughs> and there's some kid who makes a funny voice and he's literally got, you know, bigger than fucking Seinfeld. And you're like, Oh, this is a serious medium. Would you say that's you where know, you're, would you say that's where your kids are finding most of their their art and their medium is the internet video games do they still it's it's all over the place like like i noticed myself like the, you know being on on youtube where i'm looking up you know being an old old man i'll like you know have a penchant for like 60s english mod stuff and just bouncing around going from video to video and like you just go down this rabbit hole where you're like 27 videos into it and you're finding out more and more amazing shit you didn't know exist from 50 years ago. Well, it was funny because it's like, uh, uh, my son, he's 18 now, but this is like, God, this is a ways back four or five years ago. And we're driving and he goes to me and it's like, I have to make a point too. I never exposed my kids to music. I figured they're going to figure it out on their own. I kind of, I always think it's weird when parents try to influence their children's tastes. I, God forbid my parents would try to do that to me. So I don't, I never, they weren't exposed to like, you know, you know what your dad did? I put this record out. Never did that kind of shit. And we're driving and he goes, hey, dad, have you ever heard of this band, The Cows? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, matter of fact, I have. He's like, oh, I really like when he's talking about it. I'm like, well, you know, I put all those records out, don't you? What? <laughs> He had gone down one of those YouTube rabbit holes. Like his, his sisters really liked the Buhold Surfers, which once again wasn't me telling them what to like. They just found it on their own. He liked that. He's on YouTube looking at Buhold Surfers alongside recommendations. What's this? What's this? What's this? And then just following up on it, and he became like this huge cows fan. And it had nothing to do with you. Know, like I said, nothing to do with me. But it would just be through that. Like, and I can't even imagine having you know. I was so desperate for new music and, and new sounds, and I was scouring record stores from being a preteen until I was in my twenties. You know, I spent every dollar I had on records. Love, you know, because I loved music. And that was the only way you could get it. Obviously, um, I couldn't even imagine if I'd had access to that little type of, you know, endless resource like YouTube. But at the same time, too, it almost kind of jade. It makes you jaded because you're like, well, it's all there and it's always there, and I can just go to it whenever I want which takes, you know, some of the fun out of it that I had, which was I had to scour the fucking earth to find shit that I loved, you know. Like, when we, early on in this conversation, we were talking about, like, John Bigley from The Human hipping me to the, the weirdos. And then when I heard it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. Well, now it took me probably a year and a half, two years 
back in the early mid eighties to find weirdos releases. Cause they were all out of print already. You know what I mean? So it's like swapping stuff with somebody to get that fucking danger house single and fucking thinking I just, you know, uh, uh, cured cancer when I found a weirdos 12 inch at a, you know, out of the way record store, that kind of thing. So it's like that. It's the old grandpa. I had to walk 12 miles in the snow to get a loaf <laughs> of bread story. But goddamn, that bread tasted better. <laughs> well, I would like to thank you, Thomas, for uh, joining us tonight. Uh, I really appreciate this. And uh, is there anything that we can look forward to coming up from you? Always something. There's always something coming up. That's what we like to uh, hear. Yeah, just look me up on Facebook. That's usually where I put shit out of laziness. Well, uh, thank you again. Oh, thank you too. Thank you for listening. This concludes our broadcast day.